You're listening to Michelle Redfern and Mel Butcher on Lead to Soar, bringing you the best leadership advice and mentorship from around the world. Learn more at leadtosoar.com. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to the Lead to Soar podcast. My name's Michelle Redfern, and today I'm thrilled to introduce Sam Trattles. She is an expert in negotiation and, well, influencing, and she's the CEO and lead negotiation strategist at the other side of the table and has been doing that for nearly a decade. Sam has revolutionized the approach to negotiating and steering leaders towards achieving more effective outcomes, and you know that we're all about our outcomes in Lead to Soar. And she's had a corporate career that has spanned Australia and the UK. And she dabbles in all sorts of things, including marketing and sponsorship. She's got a really great reputation. Sam has negotiated a whopping $525 million worth of deals in her career and has been recognized by many of her clients, her stakeholders and others for her very insightful strategies and her very practical guidance. She's shared that in two books and we'll be putting the links to Sam's books in all of the show notes and in the Lead to Soar network. And what I really appreciated about what Sam does is she demystifies the art of influencing and negotiation. Her influence extends beyond the world of business and encompasses industries like, well, my first love, sport, music, the arts, and in the for-purpose sector. Her books have garnered her a couple of awards, including Best General Business Book at the Australian Business Book Awards in 2022. And Sam contributes her expertise as an adjunct faculty member at the AGSM at the Uni of New South Wales. Sam believes passionately that everyone should embrace negotiating, recognising the doors that it can open. And she encourages a shift in our mindsets and our perspectives and sees negotiation not as a confrontation, but as a conversation aimed at fair and meaningful exchange of value. That's very, very cool. Welcome, Sam. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Michelle. We're also joined for listeners of the podcast. I'm here today with a whole bunch of other people from our Lead to Soar network, our Lead to Soar members. And that's one of the many perks of being a member of our Lead to Soar network. You get to participate in these sessions before they go live to the general public on the free podcast. So our members are going to be posting insights and questions and things throughout our chat today. And well, I'll look forward to answering some of those. We're going to cover a whole bunch of things today, folks. And that includes naturally the importance of negotiation and influencing skills to leaders how to foster those skills in ourselves and our team members, because of course, they're incredibly important leadership and business skills. And just some other practical advice, including about some of those gnarly negotiations that we often hear about in Lead to Soar, which is salary negotiation. That's going to be one thing that we're going to cover. But first, Sam, I'd like to hear about when you realise that this was your thing, that you were skilled at negotiating and influencing. And then how did that spin out into this career for you? Yeah, great question. I don't get asked that very much anymore because I have been doing it nearly 10 years, which is scary. I sort of left corporate life not really knowing what I was going to do. So that was the first step. And then after just doing saying yes to everything for about a year, I sort of realized I need to get really tight on what I do. And so I went through, had an excellent coach who helped me realize that I needed 
to distill what I was doing and what I'm good at and the difference between the things I'm good at and the things I love to do. And lucky for me, the two things I love to do are negotiating and strategy. And not many people like those two things. And so I came to bring those two things together and really noticed that all of the ways that people teach you to negotiate, they always talk about it like it's teach you to be a great negotiator and you'll be able to step up to any table and it always sounds quite aggressive and masculine to me. And so I don't think you need to be a jerk to be a good negotiator. I think you can be you just better. And it's about having a good process and framework behind you and having people to work with to talk through things. So so the business has evolved like all businesses over the last decade and is continuing to do so. But it's really about the difference with the way we talk is you do you but do it in a way that makes you able to get what you want and what you deserve without the stress of thinking that you need to avoid negotiating. Well, I've just had the first truth bomb there. You don't need to be a jerk to be a good negotiator. That's really cool. And when I reflect on Susan's wisdom, Susan Colantino's wisdom about how do you get great outcomes, you've got to use your own greatness, but you've got to engage the greatness in others. And for me, and small plug, Leadership Compass book coming up, I talk about you know, really successful leaders have a combination of skills, including great EQ skills. So, you know, I love that, that you don't have to be a jerk. And I do appreciate, and as always, I'm I'm stopping to think, you're making me think about, yeah, what was I taught about negotiation, that it's going to be, you've got to be pretty hard-nosed and you've got to think about the win and what have you. But I guess from my own perspective, and you and I talked about this, Sam, when we caught up a month or so ago, I said, look, I know I'm good at negotiating and influencing, but I haven't got a formula. I've learned from some great people, but I don't know how to teach it, which is why I said to you, help me, help me come and share how important this is. So there's some inherent stuff, I think, in some of us, and then we learn from others. And I think what I'm already hearing is that there are different ways to learn than that masculine, hard-nosed way that perhaps our mindsets have been set on in terms of that negotiating and influencing. So go back to young Sam. Would people have said, and I guess influential adult people in your life growing up, would they have said, oh yeah, she's a good negotiator, she's a good influencer, she gets what she wants? Well, it's a funny question. My mum used to say that I was bound to be a good negotiator because I was naughty. (laughs) I had to work out how do I influence this person to help see that maybe I was just being a bit silly or a bit young or whatnot. So, But no, I I had to evolve. I did learn from brilliant people, but I also learned from really bad people. And one of the things, you know, you said about teaching your teams, you know, it's really important to demonstrate to young people how this is done well and for us to learn from those around to see, okay, I I see that behavior, but I actually don't want to be like that. And I think that's the thing. When you see someone who's a negotiator who gets what they want, you think, oh, I have to behave like that. And it's like, no, 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 I want to get what I want, but I don't want to behave like that. So I was very lucky as the head of sponsorship for Telstra and PwC before that, you know, I negotiated loads of deals with people all over the world. So you'd see different behaviors demonstrated. Not many people get to see as many as I did, but there are definitely people within your organization, within this network who are better than others, who you can go, oh, actually, I like the way she or he does that and be really clear about what you don't like. 
So for me, that was probably the biggest thing. And, and it didn't really bother me that people think that I was a good negotiator at the time. I knew most of my career I was learning. And when I look back on it, it's like, oh, right, that was a surprising situation where I was not cool. I did not have my head on properly and I maybe lost it a little bit. So I think I learned from those times to help me build out what I do today, which is, you know, follow a process and it will be easier. And that's what I think was the big turning point for me is to say, whoa, hang on, I don't like ambiguity. So I need to have a process because I'm a nerd. Yay. I'm a bit of a fan of a process too. I remember getting career advice, which I wouldn't have thought of was career advice at the time. It was, hey, Michelle, you're going to learn from the bad people as much as you're going to learn from the good people or the bad leaders, good leaders. And I think it's another piece of wisdom there, folks. We can see, and it can be challenging, particularly when we're impacted by a leader's traits and characteristics that aren't positive, we can say, oh God, you know, what a dick and I really can't stand that person. But then you go, hang on a minute, what's that teaching me about what not to do or what, how not to be in the future? So another piece of wisdom there, Sam. The other point I want to pick out of that is you're a global citizen, you have worked across the world. And I want to just get a quick insight from you about the cultural differences that you've seen and observed, because I think you've already talked about sort of that masculine, aggressive approach to negotiation. But I think there's, like you, I've had such a great fortune to work in different geographies and businesses done differently in different cultures and with people of different cultural heritage to us Westerners, white Westerners. So is there anything you can kind of just put in there at the start before we get into some of that process about understanding where you stand? Yeah, it's a good point. I think that we, you know, Australia is so lucky that we're a multicultural nation, but sometimes we forget and we need to be reminded, even the difference between metro and regional, you know, regional people are very direct and uh, metro people are a bit more soft on the edges, you know, and then you take it global with people's backgrounds and, you know, the British are very polite and sometimes that can be a challenge because you're not sure what they're saying. So Americans can be very direct as well because they're big and they're brash and they're bold. And then there's other countries and nations that are very comfortable talking about money. It's it's okay in some countries to ask what people earn in some cultures. So it's just sort of like, okay. And then the nuances of Asia where, you know, it's about saving face and there's so many things to learn about the people that you are negotiating with or dealing with in any capacity intergenerationally. How do people like to talk? How do people like to communicate? All those things need to be in the washing machine of how do I prepare to have this conversation so I can get an outcome that works for me and the other people in it. Yeah. And again, I really want to emphasize engaging the greatness in others. We've got to seek out that greatness. And part of that is what makes those people tick? What is going to matter to them? And what is respectful and disrespectful? And I had a little snicker because I am a woman from regional Western Australia. So I just got an excuse for my forthrightness. That and combined with my age, I think, yeah, that's what I'm all about. There you go. I'll blame that. Anyway, great overview. And I know that this is part of your process and part of the gaining the skills. These are skills, aren't they, Sam? Yes, which means we can learn them. We just didn't know we needed to learn them. It's not taught in schools, which I'm working on that one. I mean, I really think we will be a better nation if we can pick up these skills, but also to take the heat out of it. We're told so often, oh, you need to learn how to negotiate or you need to be able to influence. And it's sort of like, oh, how do I do that? You're doing it already. 
It's about becoming conscious that you're doing it and understanding that, okay, maybe I'm doing it just out of the gut reaction or trying to avoid it or not. Now it's about saying, okay, I consciously choose that I want to be more influential or be able to negotiate my worth or outcomes with less stress. So I think it's about saying, okay, hang on, I'm going to change this for me because I'm not enjoying it. And and I really think, I hope that I'm an advocate for, you can enjoy doing this stuff and you can make it so that other people around you are having a good time with it as well. Great. There's another truth bomb, listeners. This is a skill and like any other leadership and business skill, it can be mastered with discipline practice, but you've got to know what it is that you've got to learn. And I think one of the things I want to explore, Sam, is Not everything's a negotiation, is it? Well, I'd like to think so. (laughs) No, I'm joking. No, not everything is. (laughs) There's definitely days when you have to check in on yourself first. Even if there is a negotiation to be had, can I do it today? Does my mental health allow me to do that today? So we talk about accepting that is there a situation, is there a conversation to be had here? And it's exhausting. I have clients who say to me, I don't negotiate my bills at home because I have to do it so often at work that I'm over it. By the time I get home, I don't care that I'm paying too much for electricity and gas and mortgage, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, oh, okay, fair enough. I'm not going to tell you no. You know, That's up to your personal budget. So no, there's not always a negotiation to be had. But that's not to say that we don't have to have a conversation where we're just, just a little bit curious and asking questions. I think that's the seed idea of a negotiation is that, that I just want to know more. Yeah. And I suppose... Where I want to lead you now is, and where I was going with that is, I agree, I think that there are all sorts of layers of negotiation and influencing that go on, but teamed with your other skill set around being strategic and having that strategic thought, I often say to people, I like to play the long game. And if we're going to use war scenarios, I like to win the war, not the battle. Well, I like to win both, but sometimes you go, you know what, I'm going to concede the battle to win the war. But if we were to talk in strategic terms and negotiating and influencing, what does that mean to you when I say lose the battle, win the war in terms of what you do? I think it's about taking a moment to think, okay, how many negotiations do I do from the time I wake up to the time I go to bed? In one day, just one day, just be conscious of it. How many of those opportunities are going past you without you even having noticed before? When the voice inside your head is going, you should say something right now, but you don't because you think, oh, I don't want to interrupt that person or I don't or I don't. So, you know, you're being so polite, but actually you're missing out on these opportunities to build up your voice. So when I think about a typical leader, the statistics are that leaders spend 80% of their time negotiating up to. Now, what's the difference between a leader that spends 40% to 80%? It's about their process. It's about the decisions that they've already made that is to either delegate or to empower the people around them so that their 80% of being the negotiator has actually come down to 40 or 60%. So if you're exhausted in your job, are you delegating? Are you making decisions ahead of time that this is how I address situations like this or like that? So do yourself a favour and think about all the things that you're having conversations about regularly at work and at home. So if you're having a conversation at home about who's doing the washing up this week on Wednesday, change the process. If you're having a conversation with someone at work who you think, I've had this conversation with you 14 times in the last 18 months, something is wrong with the process. So you need to go back and think, okay, well, how do I play the long game 
and make myself able to have less decisions, less exhaustion, less problems dropped at my feet all the time because I'm a person who solves problems. Doesn't mean you want to do it. So you need to help yourself and step back and say, okay, I used to do it like that all the time, but I'm just going to hold my tongue a little bit here and then I'm going to use my mouth a bit more over here so that I'm actually thinking about myself first. It's really interesting that you've touched on delegation as one of the enablers or one of the process enablers for being successful because we know that it is one of the biggest challenges for many women as they start to move through into, particularly into that sort of middle to senior management, the leader of leaders type role. You've got to, as Susan says, you've got to let go of the stuff that used to bring you joy, the doing of, because you've now got people to do the doing and you need to direct the doing and delegate the doing, not abdicate, but delegate your responsibility. And I guess you're right. I hadn't occurred, it hadn't occurred to me in terms of your work that if I'm still negotiating, every day or having to influence, I haven't got the process right, which means people are coming to me for decisions or negotiation or whatever it may be because I haven't been effective enough in saying roles, responsibilities, milestones. This is when we check in, this, that and the other. So that's quite interesting. So delegation is linked to this. So let's talk about in the workplace, because I get that particularly if you've ever had small humans in your house, you're constantly negotiating, I can guarantee you, even when they get less small. So we want to make sure that our leaders, our women leaders, are really focusing on the right things for the organisation. And this means making a decision every day about being leaderly, as Susan calls it, leadership practice. And that means, am I working on the right thing here? Am I working on the right stack of work? And the right stack of work is the work associated with your positional purpose, i.e., what do they pay you to do around here to accomplish the strategic and financial goals of the organisation? So those outcomes are super, super important. What does that look like if I'm a person towards the start of my career in the context of learning negotiation, influencing, so on and so forth, Sam. Because I'm always interested in saying, look, we're not just one homogenous group as women. We're not just one homogenous group as leaders. We've all got different lurks and quirks as we go through our career stages. So what does that look like at the start? Yeah, I think I didn't do this, but I, so I'm, you know, wiser now to, to say this. I never looked up. I never was across the strategy on a page, which was usually in three-point font and across 25 pages, even though it was a strategy on a page. And I didn't feel like I needed to buy into it. And there were beautiful big words on the walls. And I was like, oh, that's our culture. And so I just didn't know that I'm supposed to deliver on something in that strategy on a page somewhere. And I think that's the difference between working in a really good cultured business and and not so much. So I encourage people from the beginning all the way up through their career is to be looking up and thinking, oh, what am I supposed to be delivering on that? Rather than I'm doing an excellent job building the culture in my team, making sure everybody's okay and they're doing a good job and they feel good. And then next minute I'm at my annual review and they say, you haven't really smashed it out of the park against what was written here. And so I'd be like, but I did all these other things. And they're like, yeah, but you didn't do these things. So I did what I thought I needed to do to be contributing. And unfortunately, that's not what you get paid for just solely. So how do I know that it's time for me to get promoted is when I've ticked off those things on the list. And if I 
don't know what's on the list, I need to go back and say, hey, these things, I don't know how I'm going to deliver on those things. So it doesn't matter where you are in your career or what sort of business that you're working within, small business or corporate, it's about that curiosity. And I need to know what do you think I can, when can I turn off my laptop on Friday? And as a business owner, this is one of the things I've struggled with the most. When do I turn off my laptop? Because I was very clear on the KPIs that I had in the job. Now that I am the boss, it's like, I'm really bad at it. I'm a bad boss. Because I would say, if you do these five things, you can go home on, on Thursday afternoon. I don't mind. So I think it's about no matter which stage, get invested in the business. Why are you working there if you don't care about a greater good? And perhaps paycheck's great, but actually making a difference in the world, I think is better. I want to pull on that thread because it's such good advice and so consistent with the advice we give to women at all career stages, but particularly when they say, well, look, Michelle, I'm not a leader because I'm only at the start of my career. I go, hang on, let's say leadership manifests itself at every level. It is different, but at the start of your career, you do exactly what Sam just said. I know my job inside and out. I know I have to contribute to the organisation achieving its goals. And that means that I know my scorecard or I know how I'm going to be measured at the end of the year. So I don't have to do a, a retro or a reverse negotiation, say, excuse me, I didn't want that too late. So you've got to know that inside and out so that when your manager whomever says, hey, Sam, this is how we're going to measure your success this year, you can go, right, some of this is doable and I'm going to nail it. As you said, kick it out of the park. Some of this is going to be a bit of a stretch, but I reckon given the right environment and the right support, I'm going to be able to do it. But hang on a minute, this is just never going to happen. And that's when you can start to have those negotiation discussions, isn't it? When you go from today back 12 months, so if today was the day that I was having my annual review or I was asking for a pay review or any of those sorts of things, what happened 12 months ago that set this up? The one question I get asked all the time, when do I start a conversation about a pay rise or a promotion? Yeah. You start it today. Even though pay reviews not till May or October or whatever it is, started today. So it is a negotiation each year that you write up your review and your KPIs and things like that and get those signed off. But you don't realise it at the time. Well, it's not set up that way. We don't have that. La- it's not explained that way. And I think there's such a, perhaps it's my generation, but there's such a, a view that, well, if it's come down from the top, that must be it. It's written in stone and can't be changed. Rubbish. And if you're not showing that curiosity and challenging the status quo, and I think there's ways to do that, and I'm interested in your view, you get what you give kind of thing. Yeah. And if you don't ask, you don't get. That's 100% true. <laughs> so again, I come back to the voices and the questions that are inside your head that you're like, oh, geez, I wish I'd know. I wish I knew the answer to that. How many times when people leave today, how many times in the next couple of days do you hear that voice say that and then not say anything? So ask that question. We all worry about looking stupid, but you know, stupid people ask questions all the time. Like smart people ask questions. We don't look stupid. We look curious. It's also about, I learned the hard way that it wasn't about asking 55 questions. I just need to think what is the loudest question in my head and ask that question. And then where does that lead? And then, okay, what's the next loud question? What do I need to ask that now? So really going through a process of of looking like somebody who's not trying to ask questions to look smart. They're asking questions because they just need to know the answers to that. And they need to know the answers to form an informed position from which they then can negotiate if required. 
Yeah, or influence the outcome. You know, everybody in the room, I've worked a lot in with marketers and advertising people, and you see some ads on TV and you go, how did that ever get through? Because everyone sat in the room and said, I don't want to look stupid and say I don't like this ad or it's a bad idea or did anybody think that that logo looks a little bit like a swash sticker? Or as it turned out, the prime office of the prime minister a couple of years ago, the previous prime minister who put out a a logo for his new women's office that looked like a penis. And they just went, really? Was there no one paying attention? That's right. Yeah. That's that curiosity. Someone could have asked one question that could have influenced the whole outcome of that. Now, I'm not saying they didn't, but it seems very strange to me that it would look like a penis if if someone asked a good question. So this is the, and I think the other thing too, is that we really encourage leaders to not get into command and control type leadership um, scenarios. Of course, there are circumstances, first responders and what have you, where command and control is necessary. But in workplaces, typically we want people to feel enabled and empowered and what have you. So again, that engaging the greatness, but we also want that influencing as well. So What are some examples, other examples of everyday influencing that our women members and listeners and others can pay attention to? I just never noticed how a grain of sand can have such a big effect when you're working in a bigger organisation and then realising how I can bring that down to a smaller organisation myself. So I was lucky I worked in sponsorship in a big brand, but one of the things I'm most lucky about was that that job meant that I had the opportunity to work across all departments of the business. So my influencing skills was, okay, I don't have the biggest budget in Australia. How do I use money people time as the key thing to negotiate at work? And so how was I going to get enough budget, get enough resources, make enough time available to be able to turn around the commercial outcomes that were part of my role? And so that was a big part of influencing. But, you know, you're influencing boards, you're influencing your boss, your peers, the people who look up to you across the whole business. People think that negotiating is about money and contracts, and it's about so many more things than that. We talk about in this business, it has the ability to do three things. One, save you more money. Two, make you more money. Three, create more harmony. And for me, the third one was what I didn't know in corporate and making sure that your team is happy, making sure that you can work across silos and have healthy conversations with people where you can say to him, I'll do you a favour today, but can I have that one back later on at some point? Remember when I did that thing for you to help you out during a party, blah, blah, blah. So it's really about all these little conversations that ladder up. A lot of women really struggle to be able to ask for a favour across the business or outside and around. And it's like, just ask. People can say yes, no, or maybe. But if you don't ask, you'll never know. And you know what? we I love that segue because we have the courageous ask. And it is, there are principles and there's a process around the courageous ask. But the very first one is you are entitled to ask for what you need to get your job done, to achieve your financial goals, whatever it may be. But you are entitled to ask. And you must step forward and we can help you practice that in the Lead to Network because we have a whole thread around courageous asks. But you're right, if we don't ask, we don't get. And some of that fear is, is wrapped up in rejection and vulnerability and things like that. But again, there's a process. Okay, speaking about processes, I want to move into our middle managers now and our managers, our leaders of people. And what are the practical things that our leaders can do to foster these skills in their direct reports, Sam. So how do we 
number one, say to them, hey, you've got to learn to influence and negotiate. And here's how I'm going to, well, obviously lead by example, but what are the things that we can do practically with our team members? I think it's about challenging them. First of all, give them tasks to do to see what they believe is good influencing skills, good negotiation skills, getting them to see who they like and who they don't like, as we talked about earlier, and seeing where their gaps are. Because they'll know, I mean, people, they're our harshest critics. So asking them to take a moment to actually look at those things, then about explaining I'm going to bring you into this process. One of the things I was very grateful for, I was brought into a process by some brilliant people at negotiating and understanding there are so much that happens in the preparation phase for being ready for when you're in the actual experience. So, you know, when you're going to talk to a board and asking them to sign off on a project or a head of a department to go and do that, your preparation is what makes the difference when you're in there. And why is that? One, It's because you can be really clear. You've got your points all laid out as to why, why now, what it is, what's the options, blah, blah. But also, if you don't have that, you're winging it. And I love winging it. I love it. I can't help myself. I do it a lot. However, in a negotiation, I don't wing it because I can be really creative if I'm not listening to what you're saying to me, thinking about what I'm going to say next. I've done all of that conversation in my head beforehand or as a team beforehand and then gone into the experience and gone, right, we're just going to see how this plays out. So I think it is about helping the younger people around us to see what is our process and how do we approach it, but also letting them fail. It is so rare that it's okay to fail. I never really felt like I could fail in my jobs. And now I think about it and go, I love when I fail because I really do learn stuff. So I have a policy, no mutes in meetings. So don't bring anyone to a meeting who's not talking or contributing so give everyone a job and it may be if you're the leader that always leads the negotiation stop it get the youngest person to lead for a change how bad can it be you know if it's a lower risk negotiation or situation then hand it over and see what happens can you give me an example of because you said two things there that I think are going to be useful for us to pull on number one assign a task to the team members what type of task and what type of negotiation? What can they cut their teeth on? What's, I guess, some language? And before we go into that, prior preparation prevents poor performance. I like you. I'm very adept at winging it. But I've got to tell you, in high stakes environments, not a chance. You've got to know your stuff. And some of that stuff is, what is it you want? Why do you want it? How does it link to the business outcomes? Why do these people care that you're asking to do something or get something from and what's in it for them. So super, super important. So anyway, back to the, I'm a leader. Okay, so Sam's told me to get a task and do some practice with my team. Yeah. Get me one. It's a good question. (laughs) You put me on the spot. I mean, it's anything. We're trying to get people to hear their voice in front of a group of people. So first of all, it can be, you're going to run the team meeting this week. It doesn't have to be super complicated deal related. It's just simple, simple thing of like, that is a negotiation. That is about influencing people because if somebody's over there yelling and getting, you know, stamping their feet or whatever, not that people yell, but you know what I mean, being forthright and you've got an agenda you need to get through, then you need to say, all right, okay, that's excellent idea, Gary. We'll put that on the list of things that need to be added to next week's conversation. And now we're going to get on with the agenda. Is that okay? So, you know, that's even just with your team, that's, 
easy. That's not easy, but that's, <laughs> that's an easy, easy issue. But I, even, I think to, to build on that, the idea I just had as you were saying that is, and I think that's a great idea, and I've certainly had a number of leaders where there was a rotating chair and the leader of the group, they'd have their turn, but basically everyone else did. But it wasn't just to lead the meeting, they had to set the agenda and go and ask people who needs to contribute and what have you. Of course, if you've got an hour or two hours and you've got five hours worth of content, hmm, I've got to negotiate. So I think it's a that is a really great example. And, I, and I've got to say, I wouldn't have, I'm stuck in the, okay, influencing in negotiations about deal making, but it's not, is it? It's just so many different things in the workplace. And that's a perfect example to demonstrate to someone how good you are at influencing, how great you are at time management, how clear you are when things go off the rails. So as an opportunity, if you're a younger person as well, just say, I'm going to run that. Or as a more senior person, going up to the SLT and saying, hey, can I come and, you know, be the moderator for the next SLT meeting or something? I mean, that's brave stuff, but why not get amongst it? Yeah, and I think influencing is often the case where there's a power differential. So I, I'm a, I can't tell people more senior to me what to do. So I need, but I need them to deliver an outcome for me. So I need to influence their thinking and the way of it. But I think also with our colleagues, those around us, there's very few people who can make arbitrary or unilateral decisions on their own. So yeah, super important. Yeah, and I think just to add on to that because that's a to pick you up, that's a generational thing that we think the person who's older than me knows more than me. And, you know, the whole thing, the whole concept of collective genius is that the youngest person has stuff to teach the oldest person and everyone in between. And I think that that's where we have to say, maybe it's about setting some rules to say, how are we going to solve challenges here? How are we going to make sure that we listen to each other? How are we going to do, be us as a team? And we sort of sometimes see the words written on the wall, the culture words, but we don't realise as our little team, within a big structure, we need to think about, well, what's our rules of engagement? How do we make sure that we're all okay and, and we're being heard? Because that's the toughest thing. I think that what's happened since COVID, the number one thing that's changed is everybody wants an individualised plan. And that does not seem unreasonable to me, but people that are 10 or 15 years older than me, they're like, what? They're so precious. Everyone's so precious. They want their, their own you know, plan. It's like, yeah, because I deserve it. And somebody's already having a one-on-one meeting with me, so why wouldn't they sit down and talk to me about this stuff as well. So I think it's about pushing aside, but also being respectfully saying, hey, I just don't know, I don't know whether you see how I this could work and showing older people. I really like that. That's nice language. Hey, I don't know if you're seeing how this could work. It's not saying you're not listening to me. You're not listening to me in my point of view saying, have we really explored how this might work? Yeah, that, that's really nice. There's a really topical thing what's well, topical for me and for a lot of people that involves influencing and negotiation at all sorts of different levels individually collectively and organizationally return to the office because you mentioned COVID so I'm going to jump through that door there's a lot of discussion from a number of different camps about the view about return to office now I'm going to give you a scenario not my wonderful clients of course because they are all very very egalitarian and say you know what work is something we do not where we go anyway Putting that to one side, I've been told I have to return to the office five days a week. And I've just, I've been enjoying all of the benefits. And so has my organization of a hybrid role for the last four years. 
what do I do? I step into this with hesitation. <laughs> I know, and I know that it's a really, that's without, so listeners, this is without no, notice. No. I gave Sam a bit of a rundown of what we might talk about, and I didn't include this. But it's, look, I sent my newsletter out today about this topic, and I swear to God, I had my inbox filled with about 30 different responses to it in an hour, and I went, holy crap, I've touched on a hot button here. Yeah, and it's absolute because it's happening, as you say, it's everyone's having this conversation right now. And I think, again, it's about an individual conversation. I think it is, if my numbers have been good, if I've been delivering against the metrics that you set for me, then please explain to me why. That's the first part. The second part is, what is the reason that you want me to come back three days, four days, five days, doesn't matter. Now, one of those reasons should be culture. It's very hard to build a culture with an empty building. I've been into lots of them in the last couple of years. It's quite sad. So how do you make it exciting to be back? And that's not about Friday drinks or bribes, as it were, but really um, there's an opportunity here for brands to reset and rebuild the organisation the way that the people who work in the organisation want it to be. So really that whole process of, okay, we're not Google, we're not going to have baseball bat, table tennis and all these cool things in the office, but hey, what do you think? What do the staff think could make this place somewhere to come and be more regular, regularly? And what are we doing here that can't be done at home? Like I do find even my team's all hybrid. We're all over Australia, but there are times when I'm like, I want everybody here because I'd love to solve problems together and do those things. And there's just something about being face-to-face that's different to Zoom or some other platform. So the answers to why is this being done, why is it necessary, and why me particularly, what's that important? Because I also think if I am on the track for leadership and I'm, I'm really driven, then I want to be able to walk the floors. I know how many friends I had all over the business at Telstra and at PwC before that were places where all I've done is got out of the elevator and then the person who was there I said hello to every day weren't in my team, didn't know what they did really, but we'd have coffee every now and then. So building my network of people throughout the organisation is the reason why I go, oh, that makes sense to me. But yeah, the, the why, why, why is is one of those things that I just think we need to scratch around because otherwise we feel like it's happening to us and it's the worst feeling of all. Yeah. Well, good luck with that, folks. And I think for leaders, when you are getting those questions from people about perhaps a policy change, whether it's return to office, whatever it may be, be prepared for the why, why, why from your people. And that is a negotiation. It is them trying to influence it, perhaps a different outcome. But my catch-all phrase to this is one size does not fit all. So that's my advice to organisational leaders. But let's be listening, as you said, that collective wisdom. What are we going to hear from those questions that we might want to pay attention to as well? Because with all oh, shivers. So we've heard from the CEO and the chair of the board that want everyone in the office, but actually we're hearing a really different set of signals from our people, from other stakeholders about what's really important. So let's look at that anyway. We could talk about that for an hour. But also it needs to be, is this the place that I need to be? So there is a point where I can walk away. So knowing what your boundaries are and going, okay. We worked with some people last year who were having to tell staff and negotiate with staff on this and it was very traumatic. And even for them, we were saying, right, you need to think about what is your walkaway point and where are your boundaries in relation to this conversation because if you're having to tell people stuff that you don't believe in then 
maybe this is not for you. Yeah, I agree. And that's a really nice segue to my next topic. Let's talk about salary, negotiating salary. We touched on it earlier. And I think the first thing is it shouldn't be a surprise, but we get asked about how to negotiate salary a lot. I talk about it in my group coaching, in my programs. It always comes up. I've got a process and I I believe in that very well, although I'm a late bloomer when it comes to salary negotiation. But what are your tips here, Sam? And I've got to say, I want them to be really specific about women because we've got some other layers of considerations around salary negotiation that our male counterparts do not. So I think one of the things that we get asked a lot is, can I ask that? So that's one of the first questions that people say all the way through the process when we step through our cheat sheet process. People are like, oh, am I allowed to ask for that? It's like you can ask for whatever you want. So this is where when you're doing preparation, pretend you're negotiating for somebody else. Pretend you're negotiating for your best friend. Get out of your brain and your body because your brain and your body will probably hold you back at that point. Do this with somebody else and really go deep into what what do you think you really deserve? And what's your dream outcome with all the shackles off, everything, go big, go big, big, big. What does that look like in terms of money, in terms of flexibility, in terms of any other type of perk that you could think that's in your remuneration package? Then once you've gone hardcore on that, make sure you go through that a couple of times and be creative. One of the things a bunch of my friends and I did a couple of years ago was we all spilled what was in our package because the law has changed now. So you can actually legally say what's in your package if you're happy to. So as a bunch of friends, we all shared and it was interesting what other people had you know, car spaces and share portfolios and this and this. And I was like, whoa, I didn't even think about some of these things. And this is part of the preparation, isn't it? This is the prep stuff. Yeah. Well, you talk about 70% of your time should be spent in preparation. Excuse me, 70% of your effort in preparation because this is what prepares you to go in and then you go, oh, I've done all that thinking. So so that's your dream number. Then we talk about, okay, what's my ideal situation? Dream one, you're going to talk about first. Ideal, that's where you go, I'll be happy if this is what happens. So maybe not six weeks or eight weeks holiday a year, maybe six instead. Maybe not a car space. Maybe I get my travel paid for me. Maybe I do a a sabbatical to the US part of the company. Whatever those things are that you go, oh, I kind of like those things. So be very clear about what you're going to be happy with. Then I think more important than anything is where are you walking away? Where have we hit the place where it's like, oh, I really am not valued here. This thing happened, this thing happened, and this thing happened, and they said all the wrong things. And so it's like, oh, okay, we're actually quite a mile away from the ideal. So I kind of have no other choice but to tell you thanks but no thanks. So that's part A. So all about you first. There's a whole bunch of other stuff in the cheat sheet, but I think that's the first starting point. And the next piece to prepare for is we have a thing called negotiation bingo. And in the bingo card, you write out, what do you think they're going to say when you put forward an idea? (laughs) And so it's a three by three grid. And then you write down, okay, I bet they're going to say, well, remuneration's in October 7th. And it's like, I know, and that's why I'm coming to you now so we can start to make a plan together. So it's fun, right? This this is how I get excited about negotiating because I used to go into these meetings and people would say stuff and I'd be like, Ugh. and now I go in and go, oh, I'm so pleased. I thought you were going to say that. And then I'm ready with my responses. And that's quite disarming for the other person as well. The other thing that I want to add in here, the other person on the other side is probably also feeling a bit anxious. And depending on where they sit in the hierarchy of the organisation, may not be the ultimate decision maker either. 
So, you know, if you've asked for an off-cycle REM review or whatever and they've got to go to HR, then they've got to go to their two-up boss, blah, blah, blah. So putting them at ease with that kind of stuff is quite good as well. Yeah, it's a we discussion. This is not about me and you. This is we. Uh, how are we going to solve this together? Do we need to write a business case? How do we da 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 Because the first thing anybody, well, whenever anybody in my team came and said, can talk about my salary, I'd be like, hmm. I was thinking about asking for a salary increase this year. So that's interesting. So that's the first thing they're going to think of. As you said, Michelle, it's about saying, oh, these guys are nervous too for various reasons, haven't been trained at have these conversations, whatnot. So so there's a lot going on on everybody's side. So so setting up the conversation, once you're clear on, on your ask and, and the bingo card and things like that, then it's about going, okay, I'm going to commit. I'm going to have this conversation with this person at this place on this date. And the beautiful thing about Australians is we get shit done. So when we commit like that, then we'll go and do it. And so say you put in a time in the diary and they walk past you in the hallway. It's like, oh, hey, that meeting on Friday, you know, let's do, can we just cover that off? And it's like, oh, actually, no, I'm running to something else myself right now. So, no, I'm not going to have that conversation on the fly. I've committed to having a proper conversation with you, so let's have that in the proper environment and whatnot. And it takes way longer than you think to have a pay negotiation. It's probably around 12 weeks and that's a good amount of time. So there's so many conversations and sign-offs that need to take place in or out of REM time, but you need to be prepared and be patient. I think that's a really good framework to say to people, if you're thinking 2024 is the time to get a pay rise, start counting back 12 weeks and crack on now. But the bingo card, I think, is something that, gee, I wish I'd known that 25 years ago, that anticipation, because my face is like an open book and I would have gone, oh, for God's sake, I can't believe you said that, even though I knew you were going to bloody well say it. So I love that, the bingo card, and they say, yeah, thanks for asking. I thought that you might think that, and that's really showing that empathy. And also, you talked at the start about, you know, lift your eyes, lift your eyes to your boss's level and the level above them to say, what might be going on for them right now, which is going to make it better or worse for me to start this conversation timing is everything, right? Yeah, 100%. There'll be times where even the time of day, the day of the week, when you have the conversation, I might set the meeting up for Thursday and then the night before the annual results come out, it's terrible. Well, I'm going to cancel that meeting. Absolutely. Yeah, the share price is tanking. Can I have a pay rise? Because it's easy for them to say, oh, well, you know the share price tanked last night. So it's easy. They're going to go for the low-hanging fruit as to why there's a no. So that's why the bingo is so important, but also the timing that you put it into. What about maintaining your composure in that meeting? I am an emotional person and it's pretty evident what I'm thinking at any given time of day. And some of these conversations, particularly about our salary, you can't get much more personal and much closer to the heart. How do I maintain my composure? What are some tips or tricks there, Sam? I think the bingo card and the preparation will help because I, as I said before, I would get frustrated with people in meetings, just go, oh, God, why? And now I'm like, oh, that's so funny that you said that, da, da, da. So I think that's one big piece to it. I think the second piece is to, you know yourself. So what do you need to have on your notepad that helps you? So for me, if I'm getting frustrated, I get red in the face. If I am really frustrated, I'm all red down here. So I need to be careful of that and think, oh, what am I going to do? So am I going to have a timeout? Is that a timeout for just, 
I wouldn't go to the bathroom, which is weird to do in corporate. People don't like that, but you do you. So I always used to do that because it's amazing what going out and washing your hands can do for your perspective on the world. Then the other thing is if you're negotiating with somebody on your side, then so Sarah, who works really closely with me, we I know her tells and she knows mine so if Sarah likes to talk through things as in keep talking and then they'll st- then they'll stop <laughs> and so and, and my redness so we'll just have a two taps on the pen and that's one of us need to go oh I see what's happening there so really knowing who you are and also knowing okay if this is a salary negotiation if this or any negotiation if there's a potential that this will go poorly how will I close this so you can have on your notes, this has not gone the way that I thought it would. I'm a little bit surprised and disappointed. Can I come back to you on Tuesday? I've got to go now. And then go back to your desk, set the meeting for Tuesday, walk away and get perspective, but always come back. And if you do lose it, you're a human being. So make sure that you reset rather than pretend that didn't happen because no one will forget. So I have had this happen to me before and I've gone back and said, look, first of all, I'm sorry. So I'm professional. I didn't feel like I was being listened to. What I was trying to say was this, this, and this, and this. Do you think it's okay that we continue? And so that person can say, no, I'm still mad at you. (laughs) Or they can say, I understand. Let's reset. So I think there's so many different aspects to the high stakes piece of it but everybody knows everybody knows when it's high stakes there is an elevated amount of emotion it's just what you do ahead of time that can help you when you're in it really nice really nice we've got a question from sarah out of curiosity in salary negotiations do you ever use an extreme anchor in brackets your dream or ideal or do you prefer to generally sit back and see how the other person values you first so I always think in job interviews, when they ask you about their salary expectations, you should say to them, what's the business case signed off on? Because they've had a business case signed off on it. They know what they're going to do. They value this role. They know what the market rate is for the role or the band. Yeah, 100%. And I know 98% of people will not ask that question. <laughs> but it's such an easy question. And we have this thing called 30 seconds of pain, which is ask your question and just wait, sit and wait for the response. So if you can handle a bit of silence while they think about, oh my gosh, she's actually asked the question that nobody ever asks, <laughs> then it will come out that way. When it is a promotion conversation, then go back to bingo, what are they going to say to you? So the first, if it's a promotion, there's always, oh, well, you know, the ceiling is X percentage within our business. We can't give you more than 20% or 30% or whatever it is. And it's like, oh, really? Okay. So I think it's similar to say, What do you think the role is paying? But you definitely drop your dream. And that's why you spend so much time at the dream level and the walk away level, because when you're up here, dream is what you will say first. So if a client at the moment who she'll be, she's asking for eight weeks leave and she's asking for to be put onto this leadership program, da, 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 da. She's got all these things and she knows out of those, out of those, which ones she's prepared to be flexible on and which ones are the no deals. So that's where you sort of know how you'll end up with your ideal. I love it. Great question, Sarah. And I'm going to reference back to another of our episodes with Cindy Gallup. And for those of you who don't follow Cindy Gallup, oh my God, get onto her. She is an amazing woman, powerhouse. But she says to women, I want you to ask for the largest sum of money that you can say out loud without laughing. And practice doing that. And and I've probably mucked up the words a bit, but but her essentially she's exactly mirroring your advice, Sam. Here's my dream, here's my ideal. But I think the other thing too is 
come to us and help. let us help you practice asking. This is what we have weekly coaching, group coaching sessions for. This is what we have the network for because we, we want this safe space and with experts like you, Sam, for our members to go, I need to practice because we do need to say it out loud to practice the feelings that we're going to get, those feelings of I feel a bit guilty or I feel a bit scared or I feel a bit apprehensive, whatever it may be, so that we can face them place them down, deal with them and say, we don't, we don't get rid of those feelings, but we learn how to manage them much more effectively. So I really do encourage people to, to practice with this. Sam, to finish this off, if you think about women in the workplace right now, ambitious women, what's your one piece of advice to them around developing and demonstrating these critical business skills? Whenever you are hesitating, ask yourself, why are you hesitating? The answer to that question is so important to what you do next. Are you thinking for other people? Are you disrespecting yourself? Are you making space for other people when you actually need to fill it up? What is the the true answer that no one else needs to know except you? And then when you shortchange yourself and you sit there and you look at somebody who may sit next to you and you go, hmm, Gary got that. I wonder how Gary got that. Gary got that because Gary bloody asked. So why don't you do what Gary would have done and do it for yourself? And I think that that's so many times where we go, I think I should have asked for that. Bloody do it. Do it and hear yourself do it and then do it again and do it again. It's not always going to go great, but it's going to go further and further each time. And your version of yelling is going to be soft and soft and soft at the beginning and then you'll get louder and louder and louder and people will hear you because you will have heard yourself say these things and ask for these things. And that is how you influence people and get better outcomes and love what you do. I love it. Very, very nice. So JFDI, just freaking do it. To summarise what we've talked about, these are influencing, negotiation, strategic skills. They are skills they can be learned and you can practice them. And we're going to share a whole bunch of resources with our Lead to Soar network about what Sam does. And in the show notes, we'll give you links to her books and her website. And I'm so excited that you're going to have this program for school kids. So this is Leadership 101, folks. We've just got to get good at it. Sam, where can we find you outside of, of Lead to Soar? So othersideofthetable.com.au or through LinkedIn, hit me up. If there's a big negotiation you have coming on, I come and help people build that strategy. We have actually a program which is a place to specifically practice negotiating so that it's not live all the time called the Non-Negotiables Club. And just generally, I'll be around. So follow me on socials. If you need me to come in and talk to your teams or talk to yourself, hit me up. I'm around. So I, I love talking to people and I truly, truly love negotiating and I love seeing people transform from the point where they're like I can't do it I can't do it too they nailed it and now they're on to their you know third or fourth big negotiation for their for their worth and and they're proudly doing it so so reach out and let me know love it and I thank you for enabling this skill in in so many other people because it's just so exciting I can tell you love it so Sam thank you for giving us your time today and sharing with us these important skills and folks we will see you next week on the lead to Swan network Ciao. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Lead to Soar. We sincerely appreciate your honest, positive reviews. You can leave questions at leadtosoar.com for Michelle and Mel to answer on future episodes. 
Until next time, we hope you'll use what you've learned here and lead to SOAR.